We are back at the Metropolitan Culture Corner, where once a month we go behind the scenes with a notable figure from the world of art and culture. Sometimes these folks are famous names, sometimes the name itself may not ring a bell, yet the person's work has had an international impact in ways that you wouldn't even imagine. Each one of our guests is inspiring, and each one is based in our beautiful city of Barcelona. Which brings me to our guest this month. Dr. Karma Font-Pass is immersed in the world of literature, both past and present. Her research explores the marginalization of women's thoughts in the early modern period, basically the year 1500 through 1770, when the newly invented printing press allowed widespread dissemination of printed materials throughout Europe for the very first time. Think about that from a modern perspective. Before the printing press, if you wanted to read anything, it had to be copied by hand. So the printing press was arguably a bigger technological leap, or at least as big as these things, which we depend on so heavily today. Dr. Font holds a PhD in English literature from the Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona, where she is a lecturer and researcher in the Department of English Philology and German Studies. She is also a research associate at the UCLA Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies and is the author of multiple books and numerous articles. She has collaborated with academic institutions and various research projects in countries including Spain, Italy, the Netherlands, the United States. She has received grants from both UCLA and Harvard University and and in 2018, she was awarded a prestigious starting grant from the European Research Council for an initiative called Project Wink, Women's Invisible Inc. Transgenre Writing and the Gendering of Intellectual Value in Early Modernity. And this project raises the question as to why women are historically underrepresented in the world of ideas, specifically when it comes to literature. Because there were women authors in that period in history, and some of them were quite prolific, but their works have often not received the same amount of focus or attention as their male counterparts. So she and her team have set out to find out why. Dr. Font has also worked as a literary translator, editor, and reader for major publishers in both Barcelona and Madrid, and has translated works by authors including Charlotte Bronte, Mark Twain, a long list of household names. So without further ado, ado is just like the best word ever. Without further ado, please welcome to the Metropolitan Culture Corner, Dr. Karma font -Pay. I think we have a lot, obviously, of course we have, in many positive ways, but we tend to have an Andro-European, Andro-Western kind of vision, and we don't realize that there are many women in many other places that they cannot really behave as freely as we are behaving now. We should integrate women's writing in the tradition of cultural history and our own traditions in a way which is balanced and that has to do with in which ways that particular work of art interrogates or is able to, to communicate important things to the audiences. I wouldn't teach a woman writer just because she's a woman writer. I choose women writers who have the ability to communicate something interesting to audiences, as, as I understand it. Hello, good morning. Before we get into your work, I wanted to ask you how you became interested in literature in the first place. Who are some of the writers, either fiction or nonfiction, poetry or academic, who inspired you when you were just beginning to find your way? When I was a young woman, I was interested in all kinds of fiction and particularly the tradition of English literature. And then I moved to contemporary literature, household names, world literature. So that's how I began. It came as a result of my interest in reading literature and fiction. And 
poetry. And then what made you go from a fan of reading to decide to pursue an academic career in terms of research and writing and teaching? Well, in the beginning, when I finished my graduate degree, I didn't go directly to academia. In fact, I spent 10 years away from academia. I worked as a translator of fiction, English, Spanish, and I also worked for publishers as a reader. After 10 years, I decided I wanted to go back to school and have my PhD in literature. So I changed from being a reader, from being a translator, and then finally being a researcher of literature. I know you've translated some big names in the world of literature. What does that feel like? Is that a big responsibility? That's a good question. It is indeed a big responsibility because when you are translating a work of fiction by such a big name with such a tradition, you have the impression that you are in a way speaking for that person. And also usually there are other translations by that same author. So you are in a way putting yourself and your translation in a kind of line of tradition and you have to keep up, you know, you really do a good job. You feel the weight of having to speak for another voice. It's a powerful voice that has a long tradition. It feels a lot of responsibility. Compared to that, is research and lecturing, is that easier or harder or are they just different? Well, I would say it's different. I think translation, good translation, when you translate consensuously, it's a very difficult task. People believe that you only need to learn a language and then translate. That's not true. You need to know a tradition, especially if you are translating classical authors. You need to understand the period in which that particular author was writing. Also, contemporary traditions, contemporary authors can be very difficult to translate because they use language and registers which are very much alive and slang and then you have to transfer to your own language. So translation is very difficult. Lecturing is also very difficult in the sense that you have to summarize and condense a lot of information that needs to be transmitted to an eager public who wants to learn and then research. So what we do at university as university professors is basically transmit the essence of a tradition, in this case a literary tradition, and try to make it evolve into something else which speaks for everyday audiences. Trying to take into account the historical context of the period that you're teaching or that you're translating or that you're working on. I know that a lot of your work now with regards to your research is focused around the period between 1500 and 1770. So what is it that attracted you mm -hmm. to that period specifically? Well, first of all, the authors themselves and also the research itself. In other words, when you are a literature scholar, you become interested in the act of research, in the act of learning more about the past, the literature past. Because what we have now is what we call a canon, a tradition, a list of names of authors that usually are inscribed or belong to a linguistic and national tradition. And I, myself, as many other scholars, want to know more about the past and about how other authors authors also participated and created that tradition. Authors that maybe have not been registered by the canon or by the critical assessment of literature. So I just wanted to know more about what there was in terms of authorship and especially how women participated in that tradition. I could see that many more women than we thought were active participants as thinkers and as creators of literature. And that's what I wanted to study. 
but there's also a huge leap between being interested in, for example, discovering more women authors from that period and creating this project like Project Wink, which is quite mm -hmm. complex, and then actually presenting it to the European Research Council project and then deciding, okay, we're going to give you a bunch of money. How did you make that leap from the seeds of this interesting idea and a personal and intellectual and scholarly interest to this project? I realized that in order to study the phenomenon of women's writing in that particular period, in the way I wanted to study it, required several people, expertise, money, and time. And so when I had the opportunity to apply for this grant, I knew it would be a very difficult challenge, very much so, but I put together a very complete plan for archival research, assessment, recovery, ultimately publication of the results of our findings. So when we do research, people usually aim that research is associated with scientific research. You know, you work in a laboratory, you do field work, and so people do not normally realize that humanists, people who study the past or the present or the relationship between humans and their cultural environment. Usually people do not think that we do research and what it means to do research. And it's a lot of work that involves traveling, going to archives, going to other places to meet people, to meet collections, and that requires money and time and expertise. You know, people who can master several languages, who are able to interpret texts in different hands, if you will, so you need to pay for this and you need to actually put together a team of people who can do the kind of work you want for you. And so it's like putting together a group of scientists around the laboratory. So it's the same kind of dynamics. We do research. I saw on the social media for the project that you or someone from your team was in Italy. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's a lot of international collaboration going on. Do you have access to these archives, that these centuries old manuscripts and texts without maybe the support of the foundation behind it? Maybe it wouldn't exactly. be access. That's true. I mean, in the past, I used to do this kind of work on my own, on my own expense. And I was lucky enough in the past to receive generous help from individual institutions who were paying for grants. A couple of weeks ago, myself and people from the team went to Italy. I have a specialist working for us, and who is a specialist in Italian literature of the period. And part of what we do in the project is what we call recovery of women's heritage. In other words, much of women's writing is being waiting and extant in archives, in libraries, most libraries, particularly Europe, because it has a long tradition and it's an old continent, but around the world, actually, you find libraries that preserve texts by men and women, of course, but texts that are not known and they have not been read, they have not been published in modern editions. And some, some of these libraries, some of them are big, some of them are smaller, we help them retrieve, if you will, or make known the kind of heritage that they have. So we not only read those texts and write about them and make them public, but we also try to, as much as we can, to organize exhibits so that the public can go to the library and see what kind of books and authors are there in that library so that they get to know them better. So we believe it's part of our job to kind of show to ordinary people that this kind of texts and authors existed and that they were interesting for a contemporary audience. 
if someone came to you and didn't know anything about your research at all, and they asked you, you know, why do these works matter in a global sense? What is society missing if we miss out on the works of these women in terms mm. of their historical or their cultural value? The fact that the work of literature is old doesn't necessarily mean it's interesting. There are works by men women which are not necessarily appealing to a general public for a number of reasons, because they refer to specific problem or context in the past that has now been overcome and it doesn't really hold any more interest, or because the work itself is not that good, although I mentioned this very carefully. I mean, that was one of the things we try to solve in our project. What do we mean by value, aesthetic value? How do we value works of art? If we have a painting, for example, an expert may come and say, oh, this painting is super good. For books, that's a bit more difficult, even though there are also specialists who are able to quote, obviously, books. But in terms of what constitutes intellectual value or aesthetic value in a work of writing, that is much more complicated because a number of critical approaches that you can take in order to assess that particular value. We tend to defend the idea that any work of writing that by particularly women that speaks about a personal problem or a personal circumstance that that person had to overcome or that it recreates a story, then we tend to say that this has value and that it's interesting for contemporary audiences. Any piece of work that can tell story or can appeal to an individual problem and how to solve it, then we say that that work has a special value. And so it's relevant for audiences. This is not to say that all over the world there's equality in terms of education between men and women, but especially in that period mm -hmm. of history, women from all social classes were not usually offered the same opportunities for education as their male contemporaries. So what are the differences that you found between the ways in which female writers articulated their experiences when compared to the male writers of the same period? That's a very good question. That's one of the things that we actually defend in our project. I mean, not all men at that time could receive a formal education. But obviously women were not entitled to go to university. And so the kind of education they received, if they received any education at all, was basically home tuition. So that affects the way women wrote and women projected their thoughts in writing or even in speech. And so the kinds of discourse that they develop is perhaps more informal in appearance, the discourse is more disorganized, but it's much more powerful in terms of emotions and in terms of direct appeal and contact with the audience. For example, a tradition of women's writing that has to do with defenses of women. Women in the 16th and the 17th century and well into the 18th century that advocate for women's rights, they defend the right to be educated, the right to work outside the household, and they demand, for example, healthcare service. They try to defend the dignity of a woman because women at that time in many places were not even considered individuals who were equal in terms of dignity. And so many women at that time, there is a huge tradition throughout Europe of defend women as human beings. And there are many ways in which women defend the right not only to exist, but also to develop as individuals. Is there a particular example that comes to mind of a female writer that you've discovered throughout this process that really surprised you or you and your team that maybe changed your idea of what it was like to live in that period of time? 
There are many instances that have come as a surprise. Some of them are well known among scholars. All of these women they may not be known to the general public because there are no modern editions. What struck me most the first time I read about them was the fact that we tend to believe that women didn't have what we call agency. And what these texts tell us in large numbers is that they are able to speak in a very powerful voice and they are not afraid of challenging political power, even when that implies putting their lives at risk. For example, Mary Estelle and Mary Shudlai, they have texts about the right of women to choose husbands. Now we take these things for granted, but in many countries in the world, even nowadays, that's not possible for some women. But even at that time in the 16th and the 17th century, these women were defending the rights of women all over the globe to choose their partners. Mary Estelle, for example, she was very much advising women to be very careful about marriage itself because marriage could be, for them, a kind of trap. Bear in mind that at that time, women could not control their sexuality in the same way that we do now. So they didn't have methods of contraception, for example, or very rudimentary ones. A woman at that time, she could easily have 12 or 15 pregnancies and she could easily die. Their lives were really very much dependent on other women pregnant every two years or less than that. So Mary Estelle and Schuttleit in particular, many others, but these two in particular, they defended the dignity of the woman's body. They were also very much keen on educating women in choosing the right partners and also educating women in basic education, literacy, philosophy, learning about mathematics or any other discipline of academic inquiry. How were these kinds of ideas received by society at the time? One of the principal questions by your project, Project Wink, is why are women mm. underrepresented in the history of ideas? So it sounds like somebody didn't want to keep these ideas around as something contemporary and vital and important. Otherwise, they would have been easier to access over the centuries. Exactly. I mean, it's not so much a question that men conspired against women and that they decided not to publish anything that had to do with women. What we find in Europe, in America, and everywhere in the world, actually, is that there was well into the 20s century, a resistance to publish women's work or to make it public because it was regarded not as good as men's work, not as relevant, not as important, not quality work. So women's writing has traditionally been seen as secondary, with a few exceptions, of course. The cultural system and the publishing system itself was not open enough to consider women's intellectual capacities as good as those of men. Male thinkers dominate our history of ideas everywhere, nationally and internationally. In 2022, in theory, there's been a lot of progress made in terms of gender equality, mm -hmm. but especially as a professor who works with all kinds of students and a younger generation, do you see attitudes that make you feel like women have reached equality in the intellectual realm when it comes to literature, or do you think there's still a long way to go? Um, I think we're still a long way to go. I teach a course on 18th century women's writing, and I remember one student from Lebanon, a very bright young woman, she was telling me all the time that she had to struggle with her colleagues at home about the idea that women were active participants. In other words, in her own environment, in her own culture, women were still victims of 
sexual harassment in ways we thought had already been a thing of the past. And she could clearly very much relate with all kinds of texts in the past that described sexual harassment. We were reading some novels from the 18th century that describe sexual harassment. She could tell us that those kind of novels, for example, could not be read in her university. There are different levels of women's liberation, if you will, or women's equality. To cut a long story short, yeah, yeah. If we think that, that we have already reached a level of women's equality and women's balance, that's not true. There's a lot of work to do around the world in that regard. And literature may help, of course, because it tells us that there is a tradition of women's emancipation that is long. And some of the discourses that we are now telling to our young women and telling to the world, we think they are contemporary, but our predecessors two or three hundred years ago, they were already saying that in very similar terms, the evolution. So women were very much aware of what it meant to be a woman and what it meant for them to overcome these obstacles that have to do with bias, hate in some cases, hate against women. And of course, the idea that women's bodies belong to any other person, that women's bodies are there for consumption and women's brains too. After the years of research with Project Wink and then that feeding back into the collections you give, what impact has this project had on you personally or what's the most important thing that you've taken away from it? I became more public as a scholar. Normally scholars have a very underground kind of life. We just do our own thing and we publish in journals that no one reads. And, and all of a sudden I experience a lot of interest from intelligent people like you who are interested in this kind of debates, not only in the history of women, but they understand that this kind of research is important, our understanding of contemporary life as well. And so my work has attracted the attention of scholars, but also the general public in ways which I had not anticipated. I felt myself honored and privileged and very much willing to serve and to communicate as much as I can to other people so that they become familiar with these traditions and interested so that they can open their mind to other ways of writing and other traditions. The project itself has run from 2019 through now it will run through 2024. I saw a long list of events and talks and courses and things that you've offered but I wanted to know especially now that we're allowed out of our houses again what kinds of <laughs> projects and events and plans do you all have for the future? We are planning a series of exhibits in local libraries. We are planning talks and we are planning, of course, field work, which involves archival research at different libraries. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tori. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Karma, for your time. These conversations are just so fascinating to me. I could just have them go on for like five hours and I would be very happy. Also, special thanks to Jessica Craig of Craig Literary, an independent literary agency, which Jessica started out of her home in Barcelona just a few years ago, and which now represents a wide variety of acclaimed international authors, including Karma, Dr. Font. And of course, thanks to all of you for tuning in this month. Make sure you come back next month, every month, because you never know who or what you're going to find on the Metropolitan Culture Corner. You're going to find me. I'm always here. Every month it's different. We try to mix it up. We try to go outside of our comfort zones. We try to look for people who enrich the cultural and intellectual artistic environment in which we all live and work and grow. Right? Right. Don't forget to leave us your comments on our YouTube channel or on social media and let us know who you would like to hear from on Metropolitan Culture Corner. See you next month. Mm -hmm.